Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite, a Project Moon Hut podcast series where we're working to create sustainable life on the moon, not self-sustainable life, through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem to change how we live for all species on Earth. Kind of counterintuitive. We're not going to go into that today because we have an amazing guest on the line. We have Jeffrey Manber. How are you, Jeffrey? I'm doing well, David. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jeffrey is the CEO of NanoRacks, and the topic we're going to be talking about today is space, another place to do business. It's not a unique frontier. Now, short story about Jeffrey. Uh, Jeffrey was at a conference for the National Space Society in, uh, in California. And he was talking to somebody else that's working with me on another project. And through their dialogue, they found out that their two moms went to the same, uh, they grew up in the same town. Well, as they're talking, my mom grew up in the same town also. So the connection became this little tiny place, which is very small on the map, if you looked it up, called Ellenville, New York. Now, Jeffrey... Uh, has been involved in the space industry. He's highly respected everywhere. Y you talk to anybody, and that partially that's because, uh, partially for probably uh, because of this, he's been involved in working with the International Space Station in terms of uh, moving payloads up to space. He's done, I think, over 700. He's worked with satellite deployments, all sorts of things, countries all over the world. He's, uh, he's well-versed in this topic. And so, Jeffrey, let's start. Do you have a few bullet points we're going to cover today? With with great trepidation, I do have some bullet points, David. I, <laughs> I've never been asked to work before uh, a podcast or an interview, so I I, uh, I do have some. Are you ready? Okay. So, so what are they? Let's okay. let's get them going. Here it goes. I feel like I'm on some, uh, you know, behind which door is the washing machine. So, um, uh, the first one is: it's been 50 years since uh, humanity landed on the moon. Why haven't we been back? Uh, good. The second is: um, what's the right role for space agencies going forward? Okay. Uh, the third is: is Elon Musk the reason for the excitement in space today? Fourth is okay. my biggest fear about uh, space exploration and utilization. Yeah, I, I think I have uh, six. The fifth is uh, the best moment in my career. Oh, cool. And uh, last for now is are we in a venture capital bubble uh, uh, with the, the space exploration? And is that good or bad? Okay. These are really cool topics. I'm excited. So let's start with our first one it's been 50 years since humanity landed on the moon and it is a big question why 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 have we not been back yeah i mean the the puzzling there's so many ways to tackle that question i mean uh, extraordinary probably one of the most ex extraordinary observations in the last 100 150 years was made by moore and moore's law that technology, you know, keeps doubling and doubling. What an extraordinary um, observation to have been true for so long. And and it Moore's law is is inherently American. And the reason why it's inherently American is it assumes certain things that we in America take for granted. It assumes that there are markets that are behaving commercially. It assumes that the government has the, the normal proper role of emerging markets, which is to support and to guide, but not to overregulate um, and not to compete against. And we'll talk about that more when we get to. So I, I've got to ask this question yeah. I'm gonna, I, right in the beginning is, did you come up with this or did you hear this or did you read this? Because I've never heard this. I, it's fascinating. I, I'm from Ellenville, David. I'm a bright boy. <laughs> I mean, so no, I get these are all. I mean, I've spent a little time, about three decades, thinking about this. Okay, so so it's it's, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. It's it's my mind is racing. Yeah. So I love it. So so I mean, uh, so so in that context, uh, uh, one of the biggest problems. Now I'm getting off a little bit. The first point as to why it's taken so long for us to uh, return to the moon, but one of the biggest challenges in my career, which has been. Uh, almost 30 years in, in, in what's now called commercial spaces, understanding that until recently, that which we do, 
space exploration has been behaved, uh, uh, has been operated completely differently from anything else we do in America. It's been, in a sense, un-American. So we, Moore's Law, until very, very recently, has not applied to space technology. It has not applied to space programs. It has not applied to launch vehicles. It has not applied to space stations. We launched the, the space program because of a politician, John F. Kennedy. And he yep. did an extraordinary disservice, in my opinion, by creating uh, a government organization that would run an activity. And in so doing, he made this a political program. So, so I mean, we can spend you know the whole evening talking about no, this. No, it's yes. Yeah, yeah, so, whatever you. I mean, yeah, I, no, no. I, I've got it. I've got. I've got. I understand the concept, right. and, and it's fantastic. So, so we're you're saying that because it was un-American or because it was set up this way that the populace or did not get engaged in the same way, and we didn't have the Moore's Law, we didn't have the markets, we didn't have all of those extras that made the market move. Correct. And it's the extraordinary thing about America, okay, is the fundamental speed. Uh, it's It can be destructive. It can be uh, have uh, uh, have impa uh, negative impacts on certain parts of society. But the extraordinary, the extraordinary uh, 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 um, characteristic of American markets is we move forward. And we have not been able to do that until now in space exploration. So the politicians funded one program. Eh, then they funded another program, uh, Skylab. We'll talk about that. Then they funded a third program, Space Shuttle. Okay. I, I, I don't know if I'm in the mood to even talk about that. But, you know, they funded the Space <laughs> Shuttle. Have to. And, at, and, and at that time, David, the United States of America was single point dependent on getting to space. That's as if saying uh, the United States of America was single point dependent on getting on the Internet or was based on one car or one plane manufacturer. I mean, what a disgrace to the way we as a country do things to have a single point dependency on taking humans and cargo into space. And so the result was, as go the politicians, went the program. And, and, and in many ways, the extraordinary nature of the uh, Apollo program, it was a, cold, uh, you know, a, a product of the Cold War. It was an instrument against the Soviet Union. It served its purpose. Uh, uh, we got to the moon first. Um, we regained our pride. If I don't know if it was lost incorrectly um, after the so-called uh, Sputnik surprise. I don't know if you know if we should have felt we lost something, but uh, we felt we did feel that we regained our pride. We put into place much of the infrastructure that uh, um, American industry has was able to uh, take advantage of and capitalize in the late 60s and early 70s. And uh, we it did far more than Tanga, uh, than, than, not Tanga, what, what was the Jews called? The ta oh, tang, uh, tang. Tang, Tang, yeah, it was ready yeah, to dance. Insane. And I've lost you on this one. Yeah, so so I, I think that the, the I mean, it did have benefits. I'm saying it had it had political benefits, yeah. the Apollo program. It did have industrial benefits. But it's so to summarize and sort of finish this this point is that if you're an outsider and you're wondering why we could get to the moon with slide rules, literally and primitive technology, and it's been. Uh, more than half a century and the clock is ticking. It's because we put, we did not put our best foot forward as we do in this country. We made it a political program and we should keep that in mind tonight and in the future uh, um, over the next couple of years as we talk about the extraordinary progress being made, made now. It's because it's becoming more of a, um, when you say it's becoming a commercial program, you're really saying it's becoming normal, a normal place to do business. Yeah, that's a, I've heard all sorts of uh, reasons, as you probably can guess, as yeah. to why we've not been to space, uh, been to, to back up to the moon, and as we haven't done what we expected. And this is a, this connects many of those dots that I've heard. So it's a very interesting uh, angle, and I, and I love it. I love it. I think it's got a lot of traction. Yeah. So yeah. thank you. That's, that's great.
Okay. So the, I guess the next one is the, the right role for space agencies. Yeah. I guess that's where we're going to. Yeah. And um, as, as you can imagine, maybe from the first the discussion, um, I, I, you know, I, I have a love-hate relationship with NASA. And, uh, and uh, today, NASA is very important to me and is a good partner at, at NanoRax. And we can talk about that. Um, but basically, I have born, I, I have held a grudge my entire career that we have a space agency. And, and why do we have a space agency? We don't have an internet agency. We don't have a car agency. We don't have a bioengineering agency, uh, all fundamentally important uh, uh, to this country. So why do we have a space agency? Well, again, we go back to the, the, the first point that it was created by John F. Kennedy, and he was a politician, and he created, uh, took a, a group of government officials, and he pulled them together, and he said, verily, I will give you money, and Lyndon Johnson made it happen, and we had a space agency. And, you know, I, I'm so frustrated because just as we're moving forward in this extraordinary time of the commercialization of our, our space uh, exploration and utilization, um, so many other countries proudly are creating space agencies. And, and then, you know, now we have the UK space agency. Why does the UK have a space agency? We have the UAE space. Why does the UAE have a space? Australia's space agency, Mexico space agency. And I'll tell you a story. Uh, you didn't mention, but um, some of the folks listening to this may know that uh, I'm the only American to, I believe, the only American to ever work for the Russian space program, the manned Russian space program. And I worked in the night. Directly for them? Yep. Yep, I work for Energia. Okay. I work for Energia, the large uh, uh, organization that did Sputnik and did uh, Gagarin and uh, space stations in the 90s. And we can talk about that. I helped privatize um, Energia and I helped, uh, um, I carried over the first contract between Russia, uh, between the NASA and the Soviet Union and, and played a role in opening the uh, doorway, that, the door to um, the cooperation exists to this day. Um, between the Russia and American has survived all the, you know, political disputes. And, um, and so, um, but the point, the reason I'm raising it, I was present when the Russians were creating their space agency. And I'll tell you something, uh, not many people know, but the Russians thought about it very carefully. And they said, we don't want a space agency like NASA. And uh, I was present for some of the discussions and what the Russians were planning to do in 94. This was under Boris Yeltsin and they're opening up to the West. They said, we want a space agency which reflects Russian society. We want writers. We want artists. We want um, engineers. We want religious people. Uh, and, and we'll have a government division to interface with NASA to do the paperwork. But we want something more from our space agency. And they told this to NASA. 94 in 1994 and nasa said no way uh, you know we're not sitting down with a bunch of writers we're not sitting down with a bunch of philosophers you know a space agency represents your government and it's on a government to go you know boom 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 and so russia came up with roscosmos it was three people to start and there you are so the world it's like mushrooms uh, the space agencies you know just keep growing and so we have them so uh, the second point that uh, I raised was what is the right role of these space agencies? But I first wanted to get on the record that I'm not pleased we have them. And, you know, that, that, that's again, that's why this podcast is here, because <laughs> I'm hearing from individual stories that are reach, I, I think will help to reshape the thinking that people have behind where we are and why we are and what we're doing in the future. So this is this is fantastic. You're an optimistic man, David. Okay, so <laughs> so okay, so I've spent my career uh, uh, trying to do one one or two things. You know, make space a normal place to do business, and and probably one of the most fundamental ways to begin that journey is to have government as a customer. And over and over, I've been fortunate. I've been able to testify before Congress uh, more and more in the last few years um, and, and be able to speak to newcomers in the industry. And folks are always asking me, what's the single most important thing, Jeffrey, if you were in a position to you know, wave that magic wand, what should we change? Over and over since the 90s, 
it's been government as customer. Okay, so where the where the government goes out and it procures goods and services, in our case, it's space goods and services. And in the 70s, well, I won't go into the, you know, 70s don't exist. In the, in, as we began in the 90s with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the emergence of commercial space activities in Russia, there was a fundamental drive by a number of people, including myself, to try and get, and it began in the 80s in, in the States, to try and get NASA to behave as a customer. And you began to see that with the first, um, the cargo missions, they're called CRS-1, where NASA stepped up and said, okay, the shuttle, you know, we're sending uh, humans to the space station. We shouldn't be sending missions uh, with human beings that have just cargo in them. And, you know, why risk human beings when it's a, a mission to send um, food and, and other, uh, you know, basic supplies to the space station? So they came up with a contract, exists today, called CRS-1, Cargo Resupply. And uh, they awarded it to a number of people. There were some lawsuits. And in the end, it emerged that Elon Musk, SpaceX, and Orbital Sciences um, emerged as the winner. And for the first time in our, our our space program, NASA was saying, NASA was not saying we're going to design the vehicle, the launch vehicle. We're going to develop it. We're going to manufacture it, and we're going to run it. No, they said, okay, we'll pay you for the cargo that goes to the space station. And Orbital Sciences had to develop their vehicle, and SpaceX began developing their vehicle. And so CRS was the beginning of a change in what's called in Washington, the public-private partnerships that exist between government and industry. And, and it was a very important change. And then next we we had the, the, the uh, voluntary, in a sense, the end. Just I jump in, yeah. do you, uh, you, the entree to NASA for me, if you, I don't know if you recall, yeah. was the portal, the public-private partnerships out of NASA with Dan Rafsky yes. and- That's right. That's right. So that's exactly where I came into that. That's right. And and it's new. And for example, at Nanoracks, we were started 10 years ago. And uh, over the past two, three years, every two, three years, our relationship with NASA deepens. And and uh, it's actually germane to this point. I mean, uh, NASA for us at Nanoracks is a landlord because we use the space station. They're sometimes a customer. They're a safety regulator. And they're still sometimes a competitor, but not as much as they used to be. And so, and so the role of the space agency um, has to be as a customer. And uh, I'll tell you just one cool thing coming up now that I'm very proud of, but it, it again explains how the role of space agencies is changing before our eyes. Um, Nanorax has just picked up a very exciting contract from the UAE Space Agency. The UAE Space Agency uh, as we have this interview, has announced and, and is preparing for a UAE citizen to fly to the International Space Station through the Russian Space Station commercially. Let's stop right there for a moment. How different than it used to be? Russians used to only send people diplomatically. We used to send people to the space shuttle, on the space shuttle, foreigners diplomatically. We'd fly a, a sortie citizen at no cost. The Russians would fly a Vietnamese citizen at no cost. Those days, those days, now it's a commercial venture. Now it's a commercial venture, and I'll yeah. tell you in a moment the beginning of that. But well, right, I, I want to I want to share. I was just with uh, Nabila Al Shemeshi. Uh -huh. She is the consulate general of UAE oh. in Hong Kong. I was have smoking a cigar with her, oh. and we were talking about exactly this. Okay, this cool. is fantastic. Cool. So the UAE has formed a space agency. They've announced missions to Mars. They want their goal is to go to Mars and they want to begin to train an astronaut corps. And instead of having a diplomatic um, relationship, they they uh, they commercially reached out to the Russians and um, in and it's going and it's uh, agreed by the UAE that Nanorax will be doing the research for their astronaut on the space station. So here you have a sovereign space agency, working non-US sovereign space agency, working with a non-US uh, sovereign space agency commercially, and yet reaching out to an American company to do the research portion 
of the uh, mission. That is the right role of the space agencies, to behave in a normal way, uh, to behave as a, as a customer so that the commercial sector is willing to invest, is willing to be imaginative, uh, is willing to have competition, um, and, and you begin to create a market. So that is the right role for space agencies. We're seeing that transition. It's 15. Who, who, if, if you were to put a finger point, if you were to say, this is when I felt it, this is when I, I understood it. This is the person who did it. Is there a moment in time where you just said, wow? Yes. It's, it's doing it. Yes. And you will be shocked at the moment in time. That's why I'm asking. So in the 90s, I was working for the Russians. And as I used to say, I don't say it as much because it's, it's not as true now. Um, but in, I used to say for many years that in the 90s, if you wanted to work for the socialists in space, you'd work for NASA. And if you wanted to work for the capitalists, you work for the Russians. And I like to work for capitalists. So I was in Russia and I was helping to uh, privatize the great uh, previously Soviet organization, Energia. Uh, as I said a moment ago, they, they you know, they did Gagarin, uh, minor, minor moments in space exploration history. They did uh, Gagarin, they did Sputnik, the first woman, um, the first pictures from the, the far side of the moon, the first space stations. And um, during the time of, uh, of uh, perestroika, boy, I haven't said that word in a while, of perestroika, the, the opening <laughs> yeah. up and changing of the Soviet Union, uh, the Soviets really commercialized three programs, the, the, really the only three programs they had which were class. Um, one was uh, the Bolshoi, the, the ballet. One was Aeroflot. And the third was their space program. And so the head of Energia was a crusty... Uh, Soviet uh, patriot called Yuri Semyonov, uh, to be exact, Yuri Pavlovich Semyonov. And through uh, a, a series of things, including um, at the request of Gerard O'Neill, the great space uh, pioneer visionary, um, I went to Russia and met with Energia. And uh, soon enough, long story, won't go into it now, they invited me to join and represent them in the States. And after clearing it with the White House, no full eye from Ellenville, New York, um, I, I got it in, uh, I got a letter from the uh, first Bush White House. They couldn't endorse it, but saying how interesting that you're beginning to work with the Russian organization, um, Energia, we wish you the best of luck. And so yeah. the reason I joined with them was Semyonov said to me, I want to be a private company. I want to be on a stock exchange. I, I want to, and this is a loyal, loyal Soviet slash Russian patriot of the 90s, uh, early 90s, 80s. Um, and, and one of the things that uh, we began to say is why did, why, you know, Semyonov said, I can't fly the Europeans anymore to the Mir space station, the Russian space station. I don't have the money. I have to charge them. Well, why not? Yeah. If space is another place to do business and you want to go uh, uh, to a place, you want a service, you pay for it. Yeah, that's, now, that's right. yeah, now your motivation, that of the European nations, their motivation may have been political. They wanted to have good relations with the Soviet Union slash Russia. But you, you're running a business. So Mr. Semyonov went and met with the Europeans. And I was present when he came back, and I don't remember the year. It's all, I don't know. It would be like. That's okay. I'm not a year person. Either, yeah. But it's just okay. It was a decade. It was a decade. Okay. And uh, <laughs> he came back and he was, he was triumphant. He came in. We were in his, in his, uh, the main office where around was this big wooden table where Korolov, the great designer of Energia, made the decision to do uh, Gagarin. So this was the famous table. And he came in and he said, slammed his fist on the table and he said we got it the europeans agreed they're going to pay us they're going to pay us to go to the space station well to my understanding that was the first time that nation states said when we do something with others we will pay for it just like any other business and the reason i was in that room was Dan Golden, the then head of NASA, was in Moscow. And Semyonov uh, said to me, you know, I'm going to do the same with the Americans. And I'm like, you know, go for it. And among certain people, this is a legendary meeting. Semyonov 
of right. you know. it sounds it sounds amazing yeah i, I i'm going to ask a side question we don't have to go into yeah it. do you speak russian uh ocean uh, very poorly very okay but you and you understand yes i understand okay. okay so i just wanted to i, I love that i love the the diversity of culture when you can understand someone else's yes, language exactly you know, so much richness in texture. yes it, i i really when i began to when i left the hotels and moved into a flat is really when in watching tv and uh it really is when i began i never took formal lessons and and so you don't have to you don't I, have I learned spanish i learned spanish because i met at 16 years old i met this woman in spain yes and that was the beginning of learnings and loving spanish yeah, so, and I, i'm sure among other things but okay uh but you're interviewing me i'm not interviewing you so, so, so right yeah, so, so, so so we've got this fantastic yeah. moment in so Semyonov goes and meets and uh, and NASA would never allow me at the meetings. They were very uncomfortable because I was American. They'd always make use of me. Okay, they were hypocrites at that time. They, uh, you know, they'd call me up and say, "Okay, Jeff, what's happening here?" But I wasn't allowed in the in the meetings. And uh, and so um, uh, they go into the meeting, and as told by a number of people, including uh, Golden's aides, it's it's been in several books. Semyonov lays out that going forward, because uh, what, what uh, Clinton, Clinton uh, Yeltsin had put in place is why not an audacious plan? Why not have the shuttle visit the Mir? We called it Mir shuttle. The Americans called it shuttle Mir. OK, so uh, Semyonov goes in and says, I want to be paid for that. And Golden says, what are you, a prostitute? What are you? You know, what are you, uh, 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 you know, uh, a beggar? No, I'm not paying for this. And he he leaves, storms out of the meeting and and goes across town and meets with the head of the Russian Space Agency, which was then three people. And the head of the Russian Space Agency says, sure, we'll do everything for nothing. And and for several years, NASA, try, uh, you know, it was one of the reasons why the Russians, one of the reasons why the Russians got this bad press at that time because they couldn't uphold their commitments because the Americans weren't paying them. And newsflash, for those of you who remember, newsflash, for those of you who don't remember the late 90s, the Russians were broke and they and they yes. had no money. And Semyonov was like, we, I'm the implementer. My space agency is three people. You want to dock to the mirror? You want us to build a space station with you? I'm jumping. We're not going to give it to you. You have to pay us. You're the you're the capitalist. Right. And so so proud of Semyonov. I was so proud of Energia. And and about five, six years after that, I was attending a conference uh, in Washington and the head of international for NASA was speaking, who's a friend of mine. So I won't mention his name. And um, he said there was only one time in our history when NASA paid a foreign uh, 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 organization uh, to do services. And he said that was when we paid the Russians, and and I stood up and and it was like two hundred people in the audience and and he just he saw me he said ah you know hell Manvers here you know and right oh no right, oh no someone could actually verify something in the end NASA paid so we're sort of straying a little bit but but the proper behavior okay. of space agencies in my view began with the Russians and it is a source that history is forgetting. You know, in our wonderful time in America that we have in space, the space program today, space exploration, uh, we forget, we choose to forget that I believe passionately and, and with confidence that it was the Russians who led the way. And it was the Russians who taught us uh, how you can make this a normal marketplace. And I was involved with the European Bank of Reconstruction and other international organizations when Energia privatized. And as you may or may not know, at the uh, turn of the century in 2000, I led a Dutch company called Mircorp, where we leased the Russian space station for two years, drove Dan Golden berserk, absolutely berserk. Okay, but we leased the Russian space station that had been privatized, the government of Russia privatized the Mir, gave it to Energia. I led a group of investors, we kept it open for two years. We can talk more about that. But a lot of commercialization began with the Russians. And unfortunately, today, Russians returning to its normal, where space may be a normal place to do business for them, which is different from us, which is centralization, control from the Kremlin, um, not really allowing commercial 
companies and strategic assets. And so those days are gone in Russia. So to complete only point two, uh, the right role of space agencies is to be a, um, a customer. A custom. Fantastic. I love this. This is awesome. Okay. This, this, is, this is amazing to hear because it's, it's, it's like closed door meetings that yeah. you're, yeah. you're hearing a story. Again, I'm going to go back to Springland, which is right out of Ellenville, yeah, yeah. where my mom was from. Yeah. Uh, I'm going back to my grandmother and these stories that they would tell you that no one knew. And they tell often on a deathbed or they tell it the last few years of life. Oh, remember this. That's not exactly well, how David, it happened. David, I, I have never been compared to somebody's grandmother. So thank you. <laughs> uh, this is a, a new honor for me. Thank you. <laughs> you you drove brought you drove by Slavin's bungalow colony. Yes. That was my mom. Well, then I'm honored to be compared to your grandma. Well, you know, you know what I'm talking yes, about. Slavin's I do on know. That. I do yeah. know. Yes. So yeah, so that's I, I know the story. So yeah, that's fantastic. This yeah. is this is amazing. I'm I'm just, I'm smiling yeah. because I I've not heard any of this, none of it in in the, the yeah. now five years been doing this type yeah. of work. So fantastic. So so let's get to this next one because yeah. I, it's a it's a nice big shift. And is Elon Musk the reason for the excitement today? Or right. I, I I love to hear your angle based upon <laughs> what you've already what, we're learning from you already. Well, you know. Uh, uh, I'm going to deflate it a little bit. We don't have to spend too much on this because we've covered so much. And and I, I put it in here for the reason because Elon Musk, of course, is is um, he is the Elon Musk is the reason for the excitement in space. But for those of us in the industry, it's important to know that Elon Musk is taking advantage of everything that we have just been talking about. And that is the fundamental shift. Okay, uh, forgive me. I mean, Elon, you know, it's extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary what he's accomplished. But much of what SpaceX has done is as a contractor, as a contractor to NASA. I told you under the CRS, the commercial uh, resupply uh, contract. And so um, his success is due to his taking uh, 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 winning a government contract and uh, and uh, uh, um, and and getting government money and and he can do that because he does it with a flair. Uh, probably the only one close to him would be Richard Branson. He does it with an extraordinary flair, an extraordinary gift. But the point that is worth saying and and understanding is that he is not capitalizing. SpaceX with his uh, uh, personal money, though he has spent hundreds of millions, but he was able to do it and raise the money he has uh, raised because he has the government contracts. And I, I've said this in the book. I, I think I yeah. said with you, I'm writing a book called The Age of Infinite. Right. And one of the th- items that I have in there is that Elon Musk, as brilliant as he is in whatever he's done, his company, SpaceX, is government subsidized. If you want to say Tesla, yes. is government subsidized, and the and the uh, and Solar City is all being a, a service or some type of connection to the U.S. government. Well, so yeah. same same thing here is he has he's uh, servicing the U.S. government. Without right. the government, it might right. be a whole different ballgame. And, and so, thirty years ago, there would be no Elon Musk. Okay, 30 years ago, there could be, you know, no nanoracks because the government was not the customer. And as I just said, I think the first example that I know it is with the Russian-American relations and, and Yuri Semyonov. But so for me, and it's it, it's not, I'm not putting him down. It's like saying Einstein, you know, Einstein, you know, Einstein, it's like saying Einstein wrote his theory because uh, he had thick glasses and the kids made fun of him. So, I I mean, it it may have been true and I don't think it is. I don't think he wore glasses, but just my point, I mean, you know, um, uh, so Elon Musk, the exciting thing for me in the industry is that Elon Musk is the result of a change in policy that we have worked so hard since the 80s to 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 realize. We were hopeful that an Elon Musk would come out of this. We were hopeful that a Bezos, we were hopeful that 
companies uh, like Planet and satellites and and um, and all this explosion of launch vehicles could raise capital. And out of that, you get flamboyant entrepreneurs. You get you know uh, steadfast entrepreneurs. You get imaginative. You may get shifty. You may get corrupt. So, so, so let me. I, I'm going to take it. I have a question that's on my mind, and I, I'm going to ask Skip. You might plan on going over it over, over this afterwards, and. Uh, I think, as I've said, I don't even know what your outline is. So yeah. I, we're working on, on the fly on all yeah. of this. My question comes down to what I've been hearing as a buzz is that I think there's 116 launch companies yes. that are now active in the space yes. or trying to promote themselves in the space industry that the that because of Elon's success and how quickly he's going through his backlog of orders that with the ecosystem the way it is today, that there could be a real challenge because there's not as much business to fulfill that type of ecosystem. Well, we can, uh, yes, we can uh, now merge the uh, point of are we in a venture capital bubble. And so let's merge the two together. Um, okay. And 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 um, uh, yes, um, there is an extraordinary amount of launch vehicles. And um, uh, when you unleash the imagination of the private sector, when you have a commercial marketplace, you you have these bursts in uh, in liquidity. You have these bursts in uh, technological advances. So I just saw, and, and again here, I'm not in any way making fun or light, but I just read an article saying there's two rocket companies uh, uh, announced in, in the state of Maine. Good God, man. I mean, uh, and I will say something terrible in, in the office of Nanoracks, a couple of the folks, you know, every time we learn about a new launch vehicle, you know, we sort of stand up and, you know, we salute or something. I mean, so uh, for, uh, it, there is no way, there is no way that if Virgin Orbit flies 12 times a year, if Rocket Lab now value, a uh, valuation of a billion dollars, and they've done three missions, I believe. If they fly 12 or 14 times a year, if Vector comes along, if if um, if uh, uh, the 3D printing, one, I forget now, comes along, and yeah. and um, and uh, Nanoracks, we've deployed over 200 satellites from the space station, and we'll always have a niche from the space station. There's reasons for that, and so we continue to grow and deploy uh, satellites. And then you throw in India, the PSLV. You throw in the Russians. Yeah. You throw in the French. Okay, um, you throw in the Chinese bursting onto the market. So let's say in, in four years you have 60, 70 um, uh, missions a year. Does the market support it for satellite deployment? No. The answer is no. The answer is no. And so what will happen? Well, what usually happens in a commercial marketplace, it's like a forest fire. Okay, forest fire will sweep through the, the industry and the, the hardiest will survive and will emerge stronger. At Nanorex, we call ourselves a destination company. And, and we won't really get into it tonight, but we're engaged. Not only are we the largest commercial user of the International Space Station, but we have significant serious plans to have our own platforms in different orbits over the next five, six, seven, eight years. And part of the reason for that is all of these launch vehicles. And, and so we see the shakeout coming in five, six years. We see margins coming down, price coming down per kilogram. And I want to be the destination that takes raw materials for in-space manufacturing or for tourists or whatever. So so we're in a bubble. And and I'll tell you, and I'll, I'll, I'll be honest and say at Nanorack, since we're a destination company, it's tough to raise money because we're not in the we're not in the launch vehicle business. We're not in the satellite constellation business. We're not in the big data business. We're not in the Earth observation business. And so uh, I, I watch with some envy, but, you know, uh, uh, yeah, Elon is part of the reason for this. Uh, he's attracted just as the Beatles, uh, you know, spawned how many rock groups and uh, and only here it's different. So I think we, we've uh, I'll say in the interest of time, I'm delighted to say I think we covered two points there. Yeah, well, the uh, first of all, you could be, as I have a company, we did computational social science, artificial intelligence, machine learning, all sorts of things. You could be in the big data business. You could be uh, positioning yourself on the on the raise differently. Mm -hmm. And while you're using the terminology that you're using that says you're a destination, there's there's a lot more underlying 
activity that could happen that could mm -hmm. transform that. We could talk about that okay. at, at another okay. time. But so, yes, it's a, it's a I, I'm glad you brought that or at least agreed with my. Yes, indeed. Assessment that there there were it's a $330 billion industry. We just saw two major companies, uh, Planetary and uh, Deep yes. Space, both fold with uh, yeah. uh, tens of millions of dollars invested. Yeah. And it's going to get rid of the hype yep. and get rid of those that really can deliver on the, the promise and run their business accordingly. So fantastic. And, and, and that kind of, if I may be the director here and suggest yeah, you that, are. okay, that's uh, that it segs into, I think I said one of the points is uh, something along the lines. I don't know exactly what I said to you, but my biggest fear. Yeah. You said the biggest fear that I didn't get to catch the rest of yeah. your biggest fear. And I, when you said that, I said, Okay, I really want to hear this because you've been involved in this industry as uh, as one of the. I'm not going to call it the pioneer because yeah. I sound like an old man. Yeah. But for a long time. Yeah. You just, so uh, ten minutes ago, you compared me to your grandmother, and suddenly, okay. and suddenly... Well, my grandmother passed. Okay. Uh -huh. She passed. Okay. So I, I'm going. I, I do think you're older than me. I'm 55. Yes, I'm older yeah. than you. I'm a pioneer. Yeah, I thought you were. I'm a pioneer. Yeah, 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 you're so, a pioneer. So, so, uh, so, yeah. so yes, grandpa. Yes. Yeah, so, so the biggest fear. And look, I remember, speaking of age, and I remember during the time of Apollo when uh, uh, there were huge protests in America over the, uh, the use of taxpayer funds for the Luna program, given the, the poverty in America's uh, cities. And I remember, I believe, I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's uh, Reverend Abernathy, because um, yeah, uh, a year or two ago, I read the reread the Norman Mailer book on on um i forget the name on apollo wonderful book and um uh you know you have people like reverend abernathy uh, mobilizing and protesting and when you see these documentaries today on the apollo program as we hit 50 years there's no mention there was there was a large segment of our society uh which recoiled at the expense and so my fear today is based on that and slightly different uh, the political discussion in the country today is a lot on income inequality, and I happen to believe it's a justified debate. And, and there is a perception that to be in the commercial space business today, uh, you are older, you are white, and you are a billionaire. And that's bad. I mean, uh, you know, what we're doing in space is extraordinary. And it's changing and has the potential to continue to change the lives of people here on the earth. Uh, ecological monitoring, uh, you know, looking at the rainforest. We now do it from small satellites called CubeSats or small satellites. Um, companies like Spire, Planet, and dozens of others are monitoring the earth. And, uh, and, and there's so many CubeSats being used for study. Nanoracks deployed a European constellation called QB50, monitoring uh, the upper atmosphere. Uh, there's a lot of good coming out of this. And, and yet, um, I worry that as we uh, debate uh, income inequality, and, and as Jeff Bezos, for example, gets more popular, and, and you, you, you know, he got into a public debate with uh, Bernie Sanders on, on minimum wages and Amazon and, and working conditions and his companies, um, that, that for a large segment of our population, they will see this effort as, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the rulers, the, the, the ones with the purse strings, the, the ones who gain the system and the ones who have the billions and instead of spending it on on health care as jeff bezos is but uh you know when elon musk is devoting a lot of his life to renewable energy and electric cars but the public perception in many ways is that bunch of white billionaires are doing this and i'll say that i was struck about a year ago in the rise in the um in the right-wing papers or the, the Republican, more conservative papers, I'm not sure the correct terminology anymore, of this anger, this visceral anger against Elon Musk. And you described him the same way they do a moment ago without the anger. You said a lot of what he's doing in his business comes from the government. And there's a growing amount of the population that is angry about that. And, and, and so I, that's, that's my biggest fear is that the more uh, the more it becomes a 
legitimate business, a commercial business, a time of when we can actually think about going forth and questioning who we are as a species and going out to the to the stars, we're going to really fall prey. Is this a rich man's game? The on my end, in terms of the United States government being a, a customer, just to be clear, and I'm not saying it for you, I'm just saying it in general, is that I, it doesn't matter to me. That's how he built his business, and I yeah. applaud him for, yeah, for yeah. taking advantage of an opportunity in a right. capital market. But others are taking that. Willing to pay. Right. Others are taking that same data point and uh, saying, and looking at this is like the Obama people. You know, when Obama gave money to to this group, it's all inside. You got to be inside the system. Um, and and uh, uh, I felt it a little bit. And 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 well, well, that but that is a that is a political challenge that we're struggling with around the world, whether it yeah. be Brexit or whether it be the German uh, view of the EU as it's converting today. Yep. Uh, there, this is a this is a global phenomenon where I think to some degree the visibility the transparency, but the lack of media attention and all of these challenges we're facing are starting to uncover, discover, identify or amplify the challenges that we're facing. Right. So I, I like I like the point that you're making, but I'll take if I can take a little jump off of it. And this is where you and I might want to have that conversation about what Project Moon Hut is about. Yeah. We want our narrative ends up transforming that thinking into something completely different meaning right. if it becomes space and it's solely space and it will be and will continue to be for a period of time that white male uh billionaire uh, but there are others that are interested the chinese not as much in terms of the billionaires but the, that narrative is going to continue and what has to happen is that space has to become something different yes it has to be climate change i there's six in project moon Hut. climate change uh, mass extinction uh, social displacement, resource depletion, political unrest, and unintended consequences from some other things that I would go over another time. So yeah. it's changing that narrative, and that's what Project Moon Hut is about. Cool. It is exactly that. Cool. It's to change that narrative yeah. so that we expand the ecosystem of people who understand it and see the valuation in it. And that's why And you and I have not had this conversation, but I think you might have heard it at the event. I called it Mirth, yeah. Moon and Earth, yeah. because we live within this environment called Moon and Earth. So We'll talk at another okay. time, but I love, not but, I do love how you've brought this down into your biggest fear. Are there any other fears that you're getting Well, that you have? Well, uh, yes, there is another one tied to the same thing, which goes back to our shared New York roots. And yeah. and um, it's, a, it's another facet of what I was just saying. And we're having this interview um, to, to date it. Uh, some weeks after um, New York City and Queens specifically uh, booted out uh, the Amazon uh, proposal uh, to to have a headquarters or plant or whatever it was in, in uh, Queens. And so one of my fears is philosophical. Um, I, I grew up in New York. I grew up, my family had a uh, was restaurant, had a restaurant. And I worked in the restaurant, did everything, cook, bartender, you know, went to the then the Fulton Fish Market, bought fish. And I, I believe in the middle class. And I believe it's one of the very unique things about this country is the middle class. And um, and and one of my worries is that um, we're going to go straight into commercialization and the players will either be companies that have half a billion dollars in venture capital, which has dynamics of its own. Or it will be led by Branson, Musk, and Bezos. And I'm very proud of what NanoRacks is. We're 70 people now. We're supported by customer revenue. Um, and and uh, uh, I worry that that uh, they will, they, just like in Europe, in Europe today, uh, uh, NanoRacks has just opened an office in uh, Torino, Italy. And one of the things we did was we wanted to find a strategic partner in Europe uh, bigger than us, but not terribly big. You know, we wanted someone like 600 people, 800 people, 1,000 people. Can't find it. Doesn't exist. Okay, you have Airbus you have, and, and in the space community. You have, you have the smaller guys and you have, I mean, real small, five people, 10 people coming out of Berlin, coming out, beginning to see a little bit out of France, coming out uh, little pockets uh, in England. Um, but I said Europe and 
who knows what England is. But um, and, and so and, 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 and you can't find you have Airbus, Talus, you have the big players. You cannot find uh, a company of a thousand people. And that worries me because that is where you have both still the imagination the, the, the efficiencies of the still what I would call the entrepreneurial spirit. And you're not yet, uh, you know, difference between a legacy company and entrepreneurial company. And so I worry that space, commercial space is going to go directly like so much of America today into the front, you know, the big company, the box store, uh, the you know, well, it, yeah. One person after an interview didn't share, didn't want to share it on the interview. And this individual said that the fear in this person's mind was that military, large corporations, Lockheed Martin, uh, the, the larger businesses will dominate this industry and this new new space, as they're calling it, or individuals mm -hmm. are calling it, will not get that growth because it's really going to be dominated by the big players in the end anyway. Yeah, that's kind of what I was saying. I will say that in my career, uh, uh, until recently, it was uh, some of the military folks that were the most creative. Um, and, you know, they've, for better or worse, they've certainly done some extraordinary things in space. Um, and, I, and I don't disagree with that. I think her, her I used that the perception was that there was a, that because in the background, these are where the contracts go. This sure. is where the resources exactly. are. It's going to make it tough for these smaller companies to be able to play in yeah, that space. And, and yes, absolutely true. And so, you know, uh, yes. So that's that's a second fear that I have. My fear is no longer as much technological. Um, my fear is no uh, as much regulatory. I mean, there's something in our business called the Wolf Amendment that prohibits uh, NASA from working with China. And two years ago, I was able to bring over onto the International Space Station the first commercial Chinese customer. Uh, even though there's a Wolf Amendment, it was Beijing Institute of Technology on a fascinating synthetic DNA project. And so those aren't my worries now. It's the two that we've just meant. The more sociological, the more uh, what is this? On the one hand, I've spent 45 minutes with you uh, saying how much I've spent my career and my life uh, trying to make space another place to do business and as a normal marketplace. Well, we, li we live in a time, justified or unjustified, where that may not be the best thing. <laughs> and, and yeah, and I think if, if I, I don't know if you would agree, if I was to paint a picture of the world and you looked at space, you have all of this noise from Luxembourg and the yeah. uh, European Space Agency, and you've got it from India and you've got UAE, R Russia, Yet, when we look at Russia, I've been told by a person who's in Russia that there's only two private space companies yes. in all of Russia. Yes. And then I'm speaking at the Space Forum in Luxembourg in, I think it's May or mm -hmm. something like that. And throughout the European Union, there is not a tremendous amount of real strong activity, exactly. even though I think Lithuania is trying to get into the mix. If you were to do a, a size map where the bubbles are the size of how much the, Un the United States still dominates right. this entire space. And China's coming. China's coming and on China's a commercial. Coming. On China, a commercial. China's definitely coming. Yeah, on a commercial. So, yeah. Yeah, on the commercial. And let's, so let's take the, uh, the best moment. Okay. Yeah, that's a good way, I think, to, to sort of wind it up. So I mentioned briefly I worked for uh, the Russians in the 90s. I worked for Nurkia. I headed up a company called Nurkia USA. And I represented the Russians and and uh, Nergia, and it was a wonderful, fascinating time. We we uh, create we um, the United States walked away from space station freedom, elected to to work with the Russians, and it was very interesting. A few years later, uh, I was involved, as I said, in a Dutch company called Mircor. And when I look at this, probably one of those moments, it was that. Um, we we put 40 or something million dollars on the table and we leased the russian space station mir and uh to this day it's about to end soon i'm very happy to say but mir corp sponsored the world's first and right now only commercial crew we sent two cosmonauts to the uh, abandoned mir station and we funded it for 70 something days um and it was uh, extraordinary um there was a why did the why did you go to the abandoned station we wanted to keep it uh, i mentioned you know my career has been in space stations uh, the russians were under pressure from the americans to abandon the station so they would focus their national interests on um the international space station mr Semyonov had been given the space station by his government. It was now private. And he 
behaving like a business person, wanted to raise capital and preserve the station. And I am always in favor of preserving something in space, whether it's the Mir space station, whether it's cargo ships, we fill with garbage now and destroy in the upper atmosphere, which tells you more of everything you wanna know still about the industry today that we destroy perfectly good spacecraft uh, in space by stuffing them with garbage. Uh, and, and so after they've delivered the cargo to the space station, so uh, I was brought in. I didn't realize that. Yes. That's so when Orbital, when Orbital uh, and the Russians with Progress uh, send uh, 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 cargo to the, uh, and the Japanese, they send the cargo ships up. Um, they're filled with supplies and experiments, and on some of them, Nanorax is half the vehicle, like SpaceX or something, and uh, it gets to the station, the astronauts, uh, when it docks, or as we also say sometimes, berths, um, it, it, the astronauts unload the cargo, and then and the, news, and the media covers all that, and there's you know, chocolate, and there's presents, and there's science experiments, and then the media attention goes away, and the astronauts spend a couple of weeks loading it with garbage, and they turn it around and destroy it. Now, SpaceX is not. SpaceX has something called the Dragon, which lands, and that's how you get supplies down. And the, yeah. Okay, so, so um, and we at Nanoracks are working on ways that we can use those cargo ships after their time has passed. We call it the greening of the space program, okay? So um, it's just an extraordinary waste, but it says a lot about uh, how the mindset was when they created this architecture 25 years ago. So at Mircorp, uh, we came together to save the uh, station, and I, I've written a book about it called Selling Peace. That was the uh, mere is the Russian word for peace. And um, it's an interesting look at what it was like being an American sitting opposite NASA uh, during this time. And um, so, so the day of the uh, launch, uh, here we are. There's a lot of public pressure. All the newspapers in the world were covering this. And uh, and we were ready for our launch. And I go to mission control in Russia and I'm, I'm nervous. I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure saying, don't do this. Don't try and keep the station open. And uh, they launch the, the crew launches. They get to the station and all the press is covering it. The media is on the cameras are right in my face. I remember the moment I was just so nervous. And um, and then the next day they dock and um, they open the uh, hatch and uh, they say we, we come here for a Corp and we thank them and uh, they told me later the crew that the two uh, cosmonauts that it was just terrible there was just you know stuff dripping and and uh, by the way we learned a lot we as a spacefaring people on how to fix things and uh, because of the Mir Corp mission because they got the Mir back up to health during their 70 days. But the, the point, probably the best moment that I can recall, and I'd like to say so far the best moment in my career, was the next day uh, under the terms of the lease, we had a lease agreement with Energia that we would, uh, like, like any lease of an apartment, uh, we control the uh, Mir to the first coat of paint, we called it, and uh, that way under international obligations, if anything went wrong with the Mir, it's still responsibility of the Russians. And, um, and, but under the lease agreement, that uh, once uh, the docking took place and the cosmonauts were inside the Mir, uh, we were now the leasee of the only space station in existence. And um, so I was taken aside. I didn't know what was happening. So the, 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 the hatch opens, they say, we're here from Mir Corps. And then the two men, Valerie Roman, uh, cosmonaut and uh, an important official with uh, with Mr. Semyonov and uh, the head of uh, mission control in uh, 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 his name begins with an S. I can't remember it right now. Solovanov or something. I, I'm off slightly. Um, they take me aside and we go into a side room and suddenly they're extremely formal and they say, Mr. Manberg, under the terms of the lease agreement that has been signed between Mircorp and Energia. You are now in charge of the operation of the Mir space station. What are your orders? <laughs> what do you mean, what are my orders? So I'll back up for a second and say only a few people listening probably remember that the Mir was the butt of jokes at that time. It was uh, old. Uh, there had been a leak on the station. And uh, I will point out to you that recently there was a leak on the ISS, but I won't go into that. So anyway, there was a leak on the Mir station. Everybody was making fun of it. So 
these two men, these two leaders of the Russian space community, Mr. Manville, what are your orders? I'm thinking fast. I turn to uh, Valerie Roman. I say, uh, Mr. Roman, being equally uh, formal, what is your suggestion? And he said, let's get some experiments going right away. Show things and all. We had about 80 experiments of Russian schools and some paying customers. And um, uh, and I turned to Solovanov or something. I'm closer. Uh, and forgive me if he ever listens to this. I'm butchering his name, but Solov- that's it. And um, I say, what are your suggestions? He said, we have to plug the leak. We can't really do anything. I'm not comfortable with our men up there. I want to find that leak. I want to plug it. I said, okay. I said, let's do this. 24 hours, you look for the leak. 48, I said, I think I forget now. 48 hours, you look for the leak. Nothing but that. After two days, if you don't find it, let's do some simple experiments and we'll announce it. And they said, very good. Now, uh, even then, do I believe that they really listened to me? No, no. I mean, this is their space station. This, they're, they're, they were veterans. But it was an extraordinary moment. It was just an extraordinary moment. And I sort of like, hey, you know, I, I'm in charge of the Mir space station. And, and you know, so it was, uh, and I learned so much. I'll, I'll say, I'll sort of finish here by saying a lot of what I've been able to do with Nanoracks, a lot of what I'll be able to do on any other space station I work with, uh, I'll own at Nanoracks, or if I ever work with the Chinese space station or whatever, I learned at that time. I learned with the Russians working with Energia, working with Mircorp on, on how organic, how f- uh, complex a space station is. It's filled with, you have to worry about solar uh, flares and solar cycles. You have to worry about cargo ships and when they arrive. And it, it's an ex- space stations have held my interest uh, throughout my career. And so anyway, that was the best moment when they just turned to me and said, you're in charge now. What are your orders? So that's it. To have a... To have a space station uh, circling around the globe sounds amazing. Right, right. And having the American government uh, absolutely uh, upset with you, pissed at you and every step of the way. It was a transformational <laughs> moment for me because I found what I was made of. And, um, and uh, when the mirror came down, uh, it was forced down by the American government, uh, but we had 179 million in backlog. Uh, I signed with Mark Burnett of Survivor still doing it and nbc to do a game show where the winner would go to space and some other cool things and had we survived had we been able to go another year we would have turned the corner so it was it was was a forgotten moment uh and uh and some folks are planning to do some media attention on it because it's the 20 year anniversary now so uh there's it's not forgotten now yes it it is is in um etched in digital there you go there you go. So, so, so I, I, re- kind of, I remember it. Yeah, I did my first. I did, was doing a series of podcasts, and one yeah. of my sons said to me at one point, "You know, you'll last forever." And I, what are you talking about? Yeah. This was back in the two thousand. Yeah, uh, we're doing Zig Ziglar and Tom Peters, right. all these interviews, and they said, "Well, these will last forever to be on the internet for as long as there's an internet." Yeah, I hadn't thought about it. Yeah, I so did a, about be... about five years ago. A woman calls me up and says, "We're NASA history, the archives. We'd like to do an interview with you." I gave it no thought, no thought. I went in, I did the interview. I can't tell you, but every two months, a writer or someone calls me up and says, I was reviewing your interview in the NASA archives. So let's hope this is the same. And it adds to the- oh, This will be a lot bigger. You're, okay. we're, we're getting traction more and more. Hopefully Good. with you, we'll find some more interviews. It'll be powerful. That'll help transform. Good. And I think that what I've heard from you is you want to make sure that we get over that camel's yes, hump. Yes, indeed so that we can make it. And we need this type of activity, people like you willing to come on our program so that we can explore, understand, and help individuals, including myself. And that's yeah. the reason I do this too, is so that we can understand what's necessary to move us into the to the next frontier of space yeah. development. So yeah. Jeffrey, this is fantastic. This is amazing. Okay. I loved every moment of it. Uh, it was exciting to hear. I hope you had the same feeling too as you were reliving some of these uh, experiences and and sharing some of your thoughts. Yes, I've enjoyed it uh, tremendously, and uh, I forgive you for making uh, uh, for making me do what I would call um, uh, the questions. Homework. And uh, yes, yeah. homework. So thank you very much. And well, uh, well, because you brought it up, I have to. With all the interviews I've done, Jeffrey. Yeah. And there's been 180 over yeah, the, yeah. the years. I do the exact same format. 
there's no different. But you're the first person to write back questions to me that I should ask you. Like, okay, maybe he really doesn't get this. Nope. So no, this is a it's a dialogue across the table, and Good. you come up with a few points and you talk about it, and you did brilliantly. Good. I mean, this was you gave some insight that I don't think anybody. I think many of the people that you and I both know have never heard these stories. Good in this way or these thoughts good good well thank you appreciate it david thank you yeah it was fantastic so for everybody who is listening uh please pay attention to the age of infinite and pass it along to other individuals to let them share and learn this is not just the space industry vehicle it's a tool to help the populace understand what's going on because this is an industry it's a market yet it also has potential to change how we live on Earth for all species, meaning there's infinite possibilities. We expand from just Earth into space and then from space into the resources on the moon or however you would like to view it. And there's there's a, be a lot more content coming out in that direction so that you'll be able to understand more of what we're trying to do, which I mentioned earlier in the program. So you can go to projectmoonhot.org. We are updating the site. This is in real time, but we're really trying to update and move. We're also writing a book called The Age of Infinite to kind of bring this information together. And we'll have that out soon. You can go to facebook.com Project Moon Hut forward slash Project Moon Hut. You can connect with us at Project Moon Hut on Twitter. And you can email me at david at davidgoldsmith.com or david at projectmoonhut.org. So thank you for listening in. This was a brilliant conversation. Again, thank you for the time, Jeffrey. And I'm David Goldsmith. Thank you for listening.